Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Today we have Matt Bowman here with us. And Matt recently wrote a book called The Abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, which is about the uh, UFO abduction, um, one of the earliest ones of Betty and Barney Hill. And I found it to be a fascinating book. It, it um, really tries to take a look at not so much the evidence for aliens or something like that, but instead it's it's a serious look at the the cultural um, impact around the incident that came from the incident, how it mirrors America, things like that. So I found that quite fascinating. So I wanted to invite Matt to the show to um, talk about his book. And we just recently did a UFO episode where we talked about uh, UFOs because of the government hearings and things like that. So I thought this would kind of fit well with some of the things that we've talked about in the past. So Matt, can you give us an introduction to yourself? Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, I am an associate professor of religion and history at Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California. Um, my primary areas of interest are the history of religion and especially religion in the United States. I'm also here the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies, which means that I um, teach periodically classes about Mormonism um, and research and write about it as well. What I'm really interested in and what led me to this topic is the fact that I'm interested in religion in the 20th century, and especially in a series of arguments that have been going on among historians and scholars of religion for a long time about um, what happened to religion in the 20th century. There's a, there's a very long-standing and now largely abandoned um, theory um, called the secularization theory, which is the idea that as science advanced, um, as technology advanced, as a modern consumer capitalism advanced, that religion would inevitably fade. And that's clearly not true. Um, just look around us, right? Religion is still kind of everywhere in the Western world. But it has taken on new forms. And that is where my work comes in, and especially where this book comes in. What's happening to religion is that it, um, traditional institutional forms of religion, uh, that is to say kind of denominations and that sort of thing, those are fading. Um, but what is happening is people are pursuing different ways of uh, following religious practice and belief. Um, we are into what we now call the New Age movement, into tarot, into astrology, into um, really kind of a pick and choose religion, what some people call a cafeteria religion, the idea that you kind of gather practices and beliefs from all sorts of traditions and put them together in different ways. And that is where UFOs come in. Um, UFOs are, are just a kind of fascinating example, I think, of something that really disrupts traditional boundaries of religion and science. Um, sometimes they are science, sometimes they are religion. Um, they are ascribed all sorts of different kind of powers and influences and ideas. And there are UFO religions out there, things that look a lot like traditional denominational religions, but they're focused around UFOs. There are also people who maintain really staunchly that UFOs are simply technology. Um, there's nothing religious about them. And uh, that's what led me to the Hill case, ultimately. I, I thought that this was a fascinating story um, that would allow me to explore some of these questions about how UFOs reflect what happened to religion in the mid-20th century, how they reflect the social transformations of religion um, in the post-World War II period. And also, I think these are kind of broader cultural trends in the United States 
generally. A lot happened in America in the 1960s, and the hills, I think, are a perfect example of those processes in microcosm. That was great. And that's, that is really what I um, got out of your book is this search for meaning, this journey that they were uh, going on. Um, And I really wanted to ask you about that. But first, for our listeners, perhaps we should summarize the the, the case so they kind of know what we're talking about here? Who who are the Hills and, and what happened to them? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, so Betty and Barney Hill are the first Americans um, to describe something that looks like a modern abduction. That is a story of being taken aboard a UFO, uh, being examined medically by aliens, then being returned um, with no memory of what had happened to them. Um, This is a story that has been repeated over and over and over since the Hills first talked about it in the mid-1960s. So they're important for that reason. Um, They lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, They were married in 1960. Um, It was a second marriage for both of them. Um, They were both in their later 30s at that point. Um, Barney was black and Betty was white, and I think that's um, significant as well. About a year and a half after their marriage, uh, they took a short trip to Montreal, Canada, a few hours um, north of their home in Portsmouth. Um, On their return from that trip on September 19, 1961, uh, they were driving down in central New Hampshire, um, late late at night. Um, it's a bit unclear about exactly when, but, but sometime around midnight. And they saw a strange light in the sky. Uh, Betty Hill described this light as looking like a star that was falling upward. Um, the light seemed to be following them down the road. And they, they got out of their car a couple of times. They looked at it. They had a pair of binoculars. So they looked at it through the binoculars. And after the third time they looked at it, they were overcome with terror. Barney, who was standing outside the car, leapt back into the car. They drove home as rapidly as they could. Then, after they woke up the next day, um, they had this sort of strange sense um, that something was wrong. Betty Hill began having nightmares. um, Nightmares of being captured by um, small creatures. Um, Barney Hill developed an ulcer, um, began drinking uh, more than... Um, his doctors thought was wise. And after a couple of years of this sort of anxiety and fear, they went to a psychiatrist, a man named Benjamin Simon, who uh, used hypnosis in his psychiatry and he hypnotized the Hills. And when he hypnotized them, um, they both told a story of being taken aboard this craft. Um, As they recalled it, the light landed on the road before them. Small creatures got out, took them back into it, uh, the craft, subjected them to medical experiments, um, interacted with Betty. Um, she had conversations with these creatures. Um, and then they were returned to their car and told that they would forget about this thing. And this is all on, on YouTube, right? This hypnosis session? Some of, some of it. Some yeah, of not it. all of it. Okay. In fact, uh, they, um, so the Hills family, um, maybe Kathleen Martin, their niece, um, has the recordings. And they are actually also in the special collections at the University of New Hampshire with all the Hills' papers. Um, they would prefer they not be made public, um, the Hills' family, but I believe there is um, one recording of, of one of Barney's sessions on YouTube. 
you can go and listen to that if you like. I see. After that, though, the Hills were convinced that these um, recovered memories were genuine. And I, I believe that. I think they actually, they 100% thought this really had happened to them. And they entered into just all sorts of controversy after that. Because as you might imagine, this story was controversial. Uh, many people did not believe the Hills. Some people did. Um, and what happened to the Hills after that, I think, well, they really created in many ways uh, the modern um, UFO narrative. Uh, but they also became a flashpoint for all sorts of other debates going on um, in the United States. Debates about race, um, debates about religion and culture and politics, and uh, their path, I think, their path towards increasing disillusionment um, with contemporary uh, conventional authority, be that authority, government or science or religion, um, really mirrored, I think, what happened to many, many Americans in the 1960s. That's great. Yeah. Like I said, that's really what I got uh, out of the book, which it sounds like was very intentional on your part was about their their search for for meaning, kind of the, the, the UFO thing in some ways was almost a side issue. They, they started in the in the fifties uh, uh, with the Unitarianism and really wanting to trust. I guess I, I just kept I, the the phrase I kept uh, modern phrase I kept thinking of is trust the science, right? Trust the experts, and you know mm -hmm. they really wanted to believe in expertise. Uh, and you know, of course, at the time, it, the expertise was psychiatry and. Um, hypnosis and some things that you know from our, our modern perspective we would uh consider more pseudoscience i guess or or at least i would but and then they um or i mean hypnosis is probably real so i don't mean i don't mean to say but what hypnosis does right yeah. is, is, is is an open question and, and and more than you know science but also the state right i mean one yeah. one one uh one statistic that just blew me away um, when I discovered it was uh, a series of Gallup polls in the late 1950s and early 1960s that showed that upwards of three quarters of Americans um, around the time John F. Kennedy is elected president, three quarters of Americans said they trusted the government to do the right thing, um, which of course, you know, <laughs> compared to today, that's almost boggling, right? That sounds yeah, almost yeah. ludicrous because distrust of not just the state, right, but distrust of experts, distrust of authority of all sorts is uh, now very, very, um, well, out of fashion. Mm -hmm. um, the hills were from a different time in that so way. So was that, what was the percentage that had trusted the government to do the right thing? Uh, it depends on which poll you look at, but it's between 70, 75%. What would that be today if we were to poll that today? Um, I'm around a third of that. Wow. And I guess we can see in the course of the book, it re that really falls apart, that really unravels as they become disenchanted with the government's response to their their UFO, their 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 experience. And then they they get into this, all this uh, uh, new age, um, new age stuff and the, and the psychic phenomenon and all the all the they were pretty, pretty much right there on the, the vanguard of, of this mm -hmm. stuff in the 60s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, many, many other people moved down these paths for other reasons, right? A lot of Americans lost trust in government because of the war in Vietnam, right? Or because of the Watergate scandal, that sort of thing. Um, the Hills are moving down those paths too, but for reasons associated with uh, UFOs.
Um, and similarly with the New Age movement, right? Uh, the, the New Age movement is is a very very complicated phenomenon, um, but you know it's, it had been running, I think, in the subterranean areas of American culture for a long time, but it really explodes in the 1960s, in part because of this emerging distrust of authority, right, and the sense increasingly that traditional institutional religions. Um, Religions, you know, with with hierarchies, religions with authoritative doctrine, were not to be trusted anymore, and so people began searching um, for their own sources of authority and their own sources of meaning, and begin kind of um, combining, creating a bricolage of all sorts of um, religious practices and beliefs that they took from all sorts of places, um, from you know ancient religions um, to Eastern religions to the Western esoteric tradition um, to psychic phenomena and just begin combining and recombining, right? And the hills find their way there too um, through their UFO encounter, which they find um, New Age believers believe them. New Age believers will tell them, yeah, something happened to you. And that was validating at a, at a point when you know their psychiatrist was telling them, I don't think you were abducted. The guy Government was not interested in their story, and so on and so forth. And people actually believed that these aliens were really delivering some kind of cosmic message to humans, right? Is that what the Hills thought? They come to believe that, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's an interesting um, dynamic, right? And it shows, I think, the evolution of UFO belief um, from the 1940s through the 1960s. Um, initially, right, now, now the, what we call the modern age of the UFO begins in 1947. Um, in 1947, a man named Kenneth Arnold, who was a, an amateur pilot, um, was taking his plane out for a little uh, turn near Mount Rainier in Washington. And when he landed that plane, um, he told the people um, at the, uh, the airport where he landed, and then he told reporters that he had seen a series of um, what he called kind of disc-shaped craft um, hovering over the mountains, moving very, very quickly. Um, this was seized upon by reporters, right? And, and, and you know, 100 years earlier, 300 years earlier, who knows what people would have interpreted these things as. But because this was 1947, because this was an era of technology, it was an era of, you know, the Cold War and of jets and, and nuclear bombs and V-2 missiles and so on, um, people just assumed they must craft. Um, they must be built machines. And um, reporters called them flying saucers. And that's where we get that term. But over the next uh, five, ten years, people were seeing these things all over the place. And not simply seeing things, right? They would see strange things in the skies, but they would say, ah, these must be flying saucers, just like what Kenneth Arnold saw. And so you see the development of this narrative, right? And for the most part, the assumption is these are craft. These are spacecraft. They are like our planes, but they're coming from other planets. And that's what many people believe at that point. Now, and that is often called the extraterrestrial hypothesis, right? The idea that UFOs are built machines not so far unlike, although maybe much more advanced than our own um, spacecraft and planes are. But by the 1960s, um, you begin to see another theory gain, gaining a lot of popularity. Um, and this other theory is really related um, to the New Age movement and to um, a, a set of occult beliefs that were very popular in, um, in certain circles in American culture going all the way back to the 19th century. 
um, that are influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism and Eastern religions. Um, these early American occult movements believed and taught that all creatures, all existence, all human beings exist on a spectrum of advancement and development, and that there are intelligent beings in the universe far more advanced than we are, um, so advanced then that they may have transcended physical form entirely. And it's our um, destiny and our duty to progress and to advance ourselves, to become more like these beings that have you know, powers that we would call supernatural, that exist on multiple levels of existence and so on. Um, as I say, right, and, and this was really generated by a religious movement called Theosophy in the late 19th century. Um, and theosophists, right, read a lot of Hindu and Buddhist writings and kind of adapted those things and combined them um, with some Christian and Western beliefs. But these ideas really persist. And by the late 1960s, a number of UFO believers uh, begin to depart from the notion that these things are simply machines built on other planets and flown here. Um, instead, they start to argue that these things are not simply machines, just technology that's more advanced. Hmm. Rather, um, they are uh, manifestations from other dimensions. They're manifestations from higher powers. Um, they are representatives of intelligent beings um, that want to help human beings progress. Um, and while Betty and Barney, I think initially, um, you know, the, the first uh, few years, particularly after they have these recovered memories of, an, of this abduction, um, they're pretty firmly in the first camp. They think these things come from another planet. Um, and, and they often, you know, continue to believe that in certain ways. But by the late 1960s, they are becoming surrounded by people who believe not simply in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but in this interdimensional hypothesis, this idea that these creatures um, are from other levels of, of existence, um, that they have, you know, they have messages for, the, for humanity, they want to help humanity progress, and so on and so on. Uh, by the end of the 1960s, the Hills are coming to believe that as well. And you will find if you, you know, if you go to a UFO convention, right, you will find representatives of both of these theories there. And sometimes they have very aggressive arguments with each other <laughs> about which is the, the correct interpretation of UFOs. That's interesting. Well, it sounds pretty good to me. I, I wish wish I could be convinced almost. Uh, I know you, you want to believe Bruce, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really wish I could believe in uh, probably the extraterrestrial hypothesis would be my choice, but uh, I, I don't. <laughs> but uh, I definitely find, you know, as a kid who grew up geeking out over UFO books and things like that, I definitely wish I could believe in them. And uh, I, I definitely have a desire to believe in them. Yeah. And to go back to the meaning thing about the... Um... I'm sure you guys have read that man's search for meaning book yes. where they, uh, a, I, he basically defines the primary, uh, motivation for, for humans as, as a, you know, whether you're an atheist or a, a religious person or whatever, I mean, we all want to live meaningful lives. It's kind of what, um, differentiates us from other animals in a way i mean i i love my dog but i'm not really sure if she cares all that much about a a, a meaningful right life um i mean maybe you can make a case i don't know but um 
Uh, would you agree with that, Matt? Is 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 meaning a, a primary motivation of our lives? Yeah, well, and you know, and that is, I think, absolutely what's going on with UFOs. It may well be right that that all of these different things that people see in the sky are actually not one category of object, um, right? Some some things we see in the sky um, might be birds. Some might be meteorites. Some might actually be some strange thing um, that we don't yet have not yet, not yet identified on science through science, right? But we call them all UFOs. Or actually, today, you know, the, the phrase is uh, not UFO, but UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. We all know they're UFOs. Um, you yeah. can't fool me. They are UFOs. <laughs> but that's it, right? We call them UFOs because that that phrase, a UFO, that word, conjures up all sorts of meaning. Um, it tells us all sorts of things about science. It tells us all sorts of things about the universe, um, about what our place in the universe might be. It actually, I think, kind of teaches us humility in some ways. It tells us we don't actually understand the universe as, as well as we might. Um, but it also tells us the universe is a meaningful place. There's stuff going on out there. There are other intelligences with plans and ideas, um, and that can be really powerful, right? And it, it is, I think, absolutely what the Hills latched onto. Um, the Hills found this story. I think increasingly as their lives went on, this encounter, this strange thing that happened to them in New Hampshire became more and more and more a central axis around which their lives rotated and around which so many other things in their lives were kind of bent to. Um, it came to explain a great deal for them. Meaning memes, I guess, is what what that's what Bruce I call them. Calls, yes. calls the, the broader <laughs> category. I guess the downside is that when when we do get tied into our beliefs, do get tied into meaning, it becomes very hard for us to be talked out of them. If yes, not to be next rational, possible right. in, in some cases. Yeah, absolutely right. And this, you know, this I think happens to the hills. Um, right. And, and that, that's precisely what goes on with their hypnotist and with their experience of hypnosis. And, and it reveals, I think, how kind of complicated um, this sort of thing is. Right. It's pretty easy to say, well, we should all be rational. But uh, boy, you know, what's rationality <laughs> and uh, what is rational? What's not rational? The hills were hypnotized and under hypnosis, they they came out of this hypnosis with memories. Um, very vivid memories that were just really, really powerfully affecting to them. If you do listen to that recording of Barney Hill and in his hypnosis session, right, where he's talking about these creatures, he is absolutely terrified. Um, it is real genuine emotion. And after he was taken out of the hypnosis, he still had those memories, um, right? And he was just so, he and his wife both were just so baffled why it was that people didn't believe them. And, and it's a really kind of intractable, intractable problem, right? And it shows, I think, how complicated the human mind is, how complicated hypnosis is, certainly, um, and how difficult it is um, for us to kind of suss out, um, well, you know, to suss out what is real and what yeah. is true and what is scientific and what's not scientific, right? You, you get, when you start talking about UFOs, you, you pretty quickly get down into uh, really kind of existential questions about the nature of reality um, and the nature of, of your own mind. So I have a comment and a question on that. So first of all, in a past podcast episode, 
I mentioned that experience does kind of trump a lot of things. So like if, if the example I used was that uh, I don't believe in Bigfoot. I, I believe there's good science that makes Bigfoot a very, very difficult thing to believe in. By the way, I want to believe in Bigfoot too, but you know, I don't. But let's say I was out and walking in the woods and Bigfoot comes along and he's roaring in my face. I'm not going to say, oh, science says this is impossible. I must be hallucinating. Like I'm not. It's not going to happen. I'm going to believe in Bigfoot at that point. Experience would trump any rational knowledge I think I have through science about Bigfoot. And I thought about that as I was reading your book. And if I actually saw, never mind the hypnosis, that's a separate issue. I mm -hmm. agree with you on that. But if I actually saw something in the sky and I grab my binoculars and I look at it and I see people on this ship, which Barney apparently saw through binoculars, you know, that's my experience at that point. And I'm not going to just assume I hallucinated, right? I mean, I, I'm aware hallucinations are possible, but I, I feel like I can tell the difference between hallucinations and not, because I, when I wake up from a dream, I may not know it's a dream while I'm in the dream, but I can tell afterwards. And so I can completely understand why they felt the need to be validated in some way over this initial experience that was so overpowering for them. Now, the thing that bothered me, though, is when they got to the hypnosis. Now, I'm not an expert on hypnosis. I don't know anything about it. But I know of at least two real-life cases of, quote, recovered memories through hypnosis. And in both cases, it split families apart over supposed recorded uh, recovered memories. And the memories that were, quote, recovered, they would grow increasingly bizarre over time to the point where they there's just no way they were act, you know, they were actually true. And each time they would go into hypnosis, they would remember more. And then and just, just off the wall stuff was starting to come up as accusations over time. And in both cases, the people believed them so strongly that it ripped families apart and no one could talk. And you couldn't even reason with them over these memories that had been, quote, recovered. So I'm, I'm left with this, this idea that recovered memories from hypnosis are strongly believed, but that they're just simply not real, or at least they don't necessarily have to be real. And again, I don't know anything about this, but you must have researched this. Can you maybe talk about, because I know I cringed at the point where Betty and Barney Hill go and, and decide to get hypnosis. It's a legitimate psychiatrist that's helping him. He doesn't believe that the memories that come out of hypnosis are real. And he even tells them that up front. And yet he's still puts them into hypnosis, and then they end up believing these memories, just like always seems to happen with the recovered memories in hypnosis. And I, I was really kind of even bothered by that, that this le otherwise legitimate psychiatrist is using hypnosis and is trying to convince them, oh, it's not actually a real memory. And of course, they're going to believe it at this point, that it's a real memory. So help me out with that. And yeah, yeah. And, and Boy, was that just the way they thought of it back then? Do we still think of it that way? Like, what, what's happening here? Yeah, that, yeah, that's well, that's a lot of stuff. So, well, I'll uh, back up a little bit and and start with where the hills are coming from here. Um, I think it's important at this point to say something about the hills' religious background, um, right? They are Unitarians, and that's significant because in the mid twentieth century, Unitarianism is presenting itself as a modern scientific religion. 
That is, Unitarians argued um, in favor of science, in favor of empiricism, but also in favor of human capacity, which is to say, right, Unitarians said all human beings are rational. All human beings have the capacity to perceive reality, to understand reality, to interpret reality as it actually is. This is why I think many Unitarians are some, they're in favor of psychiatry and psychology as medical practices because they are scientific, they're rooted in research, and so and so on. Um, but they are suspicious of traditional psychoanalysis, that is Freudianism, because, of course, um, Freudianism maintains that, in fact, human beings are not terribly rational, um, that we are all kind of you were buffeted on all sides by our by our unconscious by emotions that we don't fully understand and, and and don't fully control that we do things for reasons that we can't even really explain to ourselves a lot of the time and unitarians are pretty wary of that because that's not how they want to understand human nature um and the hills i think one thing that i think is pretty consistent with them all the way through this whole experience is that they say we know what we saw and not simply we know what we saw, right? But we can interpret what we saw correctly. Um, so, for instance, right, if you were to run into a Bigfoot in the woods, um, you say you saw this big, hairy, you know, human-like thing standing on its hind legs in the woods. What you just said, right, was that you would interpret this as Bigfoot. Now, Bigfoot as a category is something that you've kind of drawn from American culture and from all sorts of movies and from bumper stickers. You know, and there's all these kind of cultural interpretations that may or may not have anything to do with that big hairy thing that you see in the woods. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also the case with what the Hills saw, right? They brought to what they saw um, this whole kind of cultural baggage of UFO culture, right? And, um, and, you know, and Betty Hill recalls, right, saying to her husband, this is b- before the recovered memory. She, uh, when they're, after they see this light in the sky and they're driving home, Betty Hill says to her husband, do you believe in flying saucers now? And that phrase, flying saucers, Right, points us to this whole kind of cultural um, movement that had begun with Kenneth Arnold and the reporters who called what he saw flying saucers. Right. And by the way, Barney's answer was no, I don't believe in them. After seeing, yeah, that. which I think is also very interesting, right? Because Barney Hill, you know, he he is associating that phrase "flying saucers" with all sorts of things that he finds disreputable and and not terribly um, persuasive. Um, so, you know, so that's the first thing I think here, right, um, is to uh, kind of separate um, whatever kind of, and th- this is what I think uh, the psychologist um, Carl Jung in his book, um, Flying Saucers, a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky, this is a point that he makes, which is to say, right, what th- there are absolutely things that people see in the sky that they can't interpret. They don't know what they are. We don't know what they are. Um, but what we tend to do is to project onto those things um, our cultural baggage, and to say, "Ah, there's a strange. I see. I saw a strange light in the sky. Um, if I'm a, an American living in the early 1970s and I see a strange light in the sky, the first thing that's going to occur to me is the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the idea that this must be a spaceship coming from another planet." Um, if I were in a different culture, a different time, a different place, I might project onto that strange light in the sky something else. 
right? The, these strange things in the sky aren't self-interpreting. Um, we make of them what we will. And that process is often unconscious. And that's, I think, in part what happens to Betty and Barney. Now, hypnosis. Um, there is a fairly, and, and there has emerged, I think, in the last 60 years or so, a fairly large and, for me, persuasive body of evidence um, that human memory, well, human memory is, is not like a diamond mine. You know, if you, if you think about memory as a diamond mine, how you picture it is that you can go in there, um, and if you're a hypnotist or a psychiatrist, you can go in there, you can dig up memories, you can excavate them um, from the dirt where they're buried, and bring them back out, and that will reproduce the past. Um, we know now that that's not how memory works, right? Every time you remember something, if, if the two of you think back to, you know, sixth grade, right? And you're probably maybe thinking about your sixth grade teachers right now, right? What you're actually doing is regenerating that memory. Um, now you are, of course, taking it from kind of neurons that have fired off and all of that, but you are seeing that memory through what is happening in your life right now. Um, you're perceiving that memory. Um, anew. You're recreating it in your current context. And that's how that's how memory works, is we recreate our memories every time we go back and access them. And that means then that our memories are never a perfect reproduction of the past. Um, and, there, and, and this is what Benjamin Simon tells the hills, right? And this is what he tells um, John Fuller, who wrote, who wrote the first book about the hill case. Um, he tells them that memories recovered under hypnosis are not necessarily ac accurate reproductions of the past, but they are um, accurate productions of culture, or I'm sorry, of emotional reality. Um, that is, the stories that we tell under recovered memory um, that are they do access our emotional reality. They access how we're feeling. They access um, things that might have unnerved us in the past and they can reproduce those feelings and that's why benjamin simon hypnotized the hills uh, because he said clearly there was something that was going on here um, that caused you both stress and distress and i want to bring those feelings of stress and distress to the surface and help you work through them he tells them before the hypnosis and after um don't expect right that you're going to get a realist uh, a genuine story about what actually happened to you here they never doubted it, though, right? They, they, they did they, not. They believed right? it fully. Yeah, and, and I think that had something to do with their Unitarianism, right? Their, their confidence in themselves, their sense, right, that human beings perceive reality, um, we understand reality, we can be trusted, right? And, and of course, there's kind of like deep and interesting arguments about democracy here as well, right? Because one of the premises of democracy is that citizens can make rational choices. You know, citizens can, can make good well-informed choices. And, and that's, you know, that's what Unitarians thought about democracy, but it's also what they thought about science and about these things, right? And that's where the, Benjamin Simon, the psychiatrist in the Hills, come to this disjuncture. Um, they perceive Simon as telling them, you people don't really understand yourselves. Um, and to be fair, you know, Simon, Simon was a bit of a, an elitist. Um, he did, you know, he, in letters after this case, right, he, he wrote to other people and he said, frankly, the Hills aren't really capable of having a, a scientific discussion with me. So I'm not even going to engage with them 
in this, right? He, he is a bit of a snob. Um, but that, that, that does not help, right? The Hills, as he's trying to tell them, um, you, you need to think about this story as expressing an emotional truth rather than a, a, an experiential truth. Because they perceive him as basically being an elitist who's telling them, you know, what happened to them, and and they they bristle against that. I, I think as as many many people would. Um, so it's a kind of intractable problem here, um, right? Is it's two ways of understanding human nature, two ways of understanding reality, um, butting into each other. So what does it mean to be an emotional truth? So you you kind of get into this in the book, particularly with Barney, that. Mm -hmm his encounter with the aliens could be very easily read as the feelings he has as a black man trying to live in white society where there's always this suspicion of him and he's always kind of the outsider. It's a, a little less clear in the case of, of Betty what, what emotional truth would be was being recovered. So what do we mean by recovering an emotional truth? And, and is that something that's actually true or does hypnosis just generate completely made up stuff? Yeah, what well, what Simon felt, right? And as and, and and it's important, I think, to um to point out that Simon does not only ask them about you know this moment you saw this strange light in the sky, right? And what happened after you saw the strange light in the sky. He's interested in the context surrounding that, and the context surrounding that was that the Hills had taken this trip to Montreal. Now it, it did not go particularly well. Um, in part because they, they didn't speak French, they had trouble with the language. And Barney Hill, it appears, um, from a couple of different sources, it, it appears that he was wary the entire trip. Um, we know he took a pistol, um, and that he took a pistol because he was worried about how, he, not, not simply him being a black man, but him being a black man in an interracial relationship with a white woman, um, how that would be received. Um, by people. He is, whenever he remembers um, going to a hotel, going to a restaurant, all of this is kind of um, freighted as he's talking about these memories with this worry um, that are these people going to treat me badly? Um, am I going to be threatened? And so what, what Simon eventually came to believe was that this was a really tense trip. And I should also mention that they had to cut the trip short um, because a major storm was approaching. And so they were really, you know, they were driving near midnight, right? Because they were trying to get home uh, because of this major storm. Um, we also know that they turned off the main road and they both recall that. Now, the Hills didn't really explain why they turned off the main road they were on uh, that would take them back to their house. Simon's, Simon eventually came to believe that um, they got lost, and that they were arguing, and that Barney was under a lot of stress, and he was very kind of annoyed about what was going on, and and he eventually kind of came to tell this story. Now with Betty, this is also significant. Betty Hill had nightmares, right? She had nightmares uh, for a couple weeks after the the uh, this trip, and in these nightmares, she was captured um, by small creatures who took you know took her into the ship and, and did essentially what the memories that she recovered under hypnosis later on. Um, Simon never doubted those nightmares. He said, yeah, these are probably our real nightmares. Um, these are nightmares that she actually had. Um, and he kept pushing, trying to discover if Betty Hill had told Barney the narrative of these nightmares. Um, Simon eventually came to believe that she had, 
or that if she did not tell them to Barney, that at least she told them in Barney's hearing. Um, she told the story of these dreams. And so Simon thought Barney, under hypnosis, took this, um, this story of Betty's nightmares and interwove it with his own worries and fears and anxieties about racial persecution and thus generated this story. Now, what is interesting about Betty's stories that she re uh, recovered under hypnosis is, is they do closely mirror um, her nightmares. Um, there are some, I think, key differences, but in many ways, right, they are kind of reproduction of these dreams that she had in, in just the first couple of months after. And, and that her. she had written down. Yes, and I, yeah, that is a good point. And she wrote these down. Um, now, I think one thing that she did do while she was writing down um, these dreams was to put them in a narrative format. Right. Uh, and she, she confesses that, right? She says, I had a bunch of dreams. Um, they were not a reproduction of this single kind of coherent story. I have kind of turned them into this single coherent story as I wrote them down. I thought you kind of dropped a bombshell maybe in the last like few pages where you also mentioned and that um, their their experience uh, was very similar to an episode of The Outer Limits. Oh, had, well, in some ways, okay. not exactly, but in some ways, yeah. Uh, it's actually the the experience is not at all similar to the plot of the episode. Um, but 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 the creature in the Outer Limits episode has um, large bony ridges going um, from the top of its eyes back to the sides of its head. And under hypnosis, although importantly, not in the nightmares, um, not in Betty's nightmares, but under hypnosis, the hills describe these creatures as having um, large slanted, you know, kind of the quintessential alien eyes, um, right? Okay. Now, Betty, I think, though, I think what's, what's significant about this is that the story that Betty tells is not like the story that Barney tells. It, it is in kind of the basic narrative beats. There were creatures in the road. They took them into the craft. They subjected them to medical experimentation. Then they took them off. Um, that, that kind of basic framework is there. Um, but for Betty, this whole experience is, is not nearly as terrifying as it is for Barney. Um, Betty is fascinated by it. Um, she's very interested in this. And um, we know that Betty was interested in UFOs before this experience. Um, her sister had seen a UFO. Um, she, you know, she knew enough to ask her husband, was, do you believe in flying saucers now? After that, right, she was kind of following this. Um, and for her, the whole story, I think, seems to be very much a kind of expression of, of her real, of, of a hunger that she had all the way back to um, being a child, right? Uh, about how to learn about the world, how to master the world, how to make a difference, and how to, how to really, I think, um, find ways to change the world for the better. And that, I think, really shines through in the conversations that she says she has with the alien. She's asking them questions about who they are and where they came from and how she can learn more. Um, she wants to introduce them to scientists, right? She wants to kind of create this sort of relationship between this other civilization and humanity. Um, she doesn't have the same kind of abject terror that Barney does. Um, the story does different things, I think, for the two of them in ways that reflect, I think, their different kind of, um, their different places in America in 1960 or so.
So let me read a little bit from your book. It says, because the state did not respond to their experiences as they hoped it would, they grew increasingly frustrated about the role it should have in their lives. That in turn cast doubt upon those scientific authorities and more upon whether or not legally enforced desegregation would bring about the sort of integrated society they hoped for. Mm -hmm. um, and so then from the, yeah, that's like in the opening introduction to your book. And then in the book, you detail how UFOs went from being perceived by the Air Force and scientific authorities um, from being seen as a scientific question to being seen as pseudoscience. Um, mm -hmm. How did that happen? How did, what happened that it went from, and it seems like we're coming full circle. We're, we're, we're starting to treat uh, UFOs as a legitimate scientific question again as to what they are and to try to figure it out um, with the congressional hearings and things like that. But uh, what happened that went from starting at that point to treating it as pseudoscience that then created this kind of negative reaction for Betty and Barney Hill? Um, and then how have we come back around on that? Yeah, boy, there's there's another book length question, <laughs> but I, I will I will I will do what I can. Yeah. So initially, um, in 1947, of course, we have the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and then that is followed up fairly rapidly with a whole lot of other sightings. And there may be a couple of things going on here, depending on your interpretation of it. One might be that, in fact, there are a lot more sightings in after 1947. Over the, the, the five, ten years after that, um, there are a lot more of these strange things in the sky. Another way of interpreting it might be that people begin to identify strange things they see in the sky as flying saucers, as UFOs, right? And so there are more reports of flying saucers slash UFOs at that point. Um, but there is legitimate government interest um, in this early on. We've got records um, from you know the military, from the Air Force in particular, saying you know this is something we need to take a look at. Um, this is something we need to pay attention to. And there are a series of government studies about these things. Um, they're called um, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and then most famously. Project Blue Book. What happens is that these various studies and these various government projects conclude repeatedly that there's not much there, um, that there's not much of interest here. Now, whether or not that's a legitimate conclusion is also open to debate. Um, one of the first um, major um, turning points here is in something called the Robertson Panel. Um, which is called in 1952, um, led by a very well-respected scientist named um, Howard Robertson, that's the name. And this panel meets and looks at a series of cases that have been gathered by the Air Force over the previous five years or so. And the panel concludes that there's nothing here. Um, and in fact, the panel concludes that the major threat of UFOs is not that they are machines from another planet or another dimension or whatnot, but rather their major threat is that they're going to make Americans anxious, is that Americans don't need another thing to be worried about in the early 1950s, and that these stories of alien craft and, and, and alien invasion and so on are, are only going to make things worse. And so the Robertson panel encourages 
um, quite explicitly encourages the government to try to debunk these things and to more or less say, you know, there's nothing, nothing to see here, right? Everyone move, move on, move on. And there are indeed actual instances of this kind of thing happening, right? We, there, there's a, there's a famous story in the Saturday evening post, um, in which the air force decided to participate in and, uh, and, Overwhelmingly, all the Air Force people say is, you know, rational people won't pay attention to these things. They're, you know, they're, they're, there's nothing here. Um, move along, everybody. Um, now, that, depending on your point of view, where the government comes down here is either simply, you know, following the evidence, right, of a series of studies in which people say, you know, well, we don't really think there's anything here. Or you might, I think also with fairness, say, um, that the government's the the Robertson panel particularly is a fairly hastily arranged meeting. Uh, they only meet for three days. None of the scientists on the panel had been all that involved in in the UFO studies before. Alan Hynek, um, who was a very well respected astronomer, who had been um, the primary um, contractor. Um, that the Air Force had had uh, was working with to investigate these things, he felt that the Robertson panel was basically not taking this thing seriously, and that they just were brushing brushing off a lot of reports that that Heineck felt had some legitimate um, teeth to them. Um, so you could go either way on this, right? But it is true, I think, that over the 1960s, then and again later on, um, with. Well, later on um, in 1968, there's another committee formed by the government called the Condon Committee, chaired by Edward Condon at the University of Colorado. And uh, the Condon Committee concludes the same thing. Um, they say, you know, there's nothing here. The major threat is people paying too much attention um, to UFOs and UFOs are going to make Americans anxious and they're going to freak us all out. And so we shouldn't pay attention to them. Um, Heineck again is very frustrated with the Condon Committee. Um, he says they're not taking this seriously enough. There is sufficient evidence here for a serious investigation. And critically, Heineck says, both the Condon Committee and the Robertson panel are being condescending to people when they're saying, you know, Americans don't, Americans shouldn't be worrying about UFOs. So let's try to make people stop worrying about them by dismissing and downplaying them. So there's a lot of moving parts here, right? And you can interpret this process in a number of different ways. Um, I personally, I think, um, tend to think that generally speaking, um, the, Earth, the scientific investigation here is probably correct. But I also think that Heineck is correct to say that these different panels and different government reports um, tend to come off as fairly condescending and paternalistic. That is to say, why, why are people even bothering with this? And uh, Heineck said, right, he said the vast majority of these cases can be explained um, as misidentifications, as perhaps hoaxes, things like that. Um, but he said there's a, small, there's a small minority of these cases that we can't explain. We don't know what they are. And those are the ones we should be paying more attention to. And, and, and that actually that, that resonates with me, I think. I love how sympathetically you portray uh, Betty and Barney Hill in, in the book. I mean, you really it seems like you have a lot of um, you, you bend over backwards, it seems to me, to really to, to really 
uh, look at things from their perspective, even though I kind of assume you're not a uh, super big uh, UFO enthusiast. But, you know, Betty, I mean, Betty at least really went kind of, I don't want to say crazy, but she really got out there, right? I mean, there's something on the the UF on the Wikipedia where she's they're talking about her at a, a UFO conference, and she's um, showing pictures of random airplanes and things, and even the uh, uh, random lights in the sky, and even the UFO enthusiasts are basically booing her at, at that point. And yeah, you know, is that, yeah, is that accurate. Yeah, you know, near, near by by the late 1970s, the 1980s, um, well, she receives a let she receives some communication, I think, from from UFO investigators um, who were her friends, who were her allies. Um, John Fuller, who I mentioned before, John Fuller is a journalist who wrote um, the first book length study of their case, and he, John Fuller, absolutely believed, you know, that, that this had happened to her. Um, many other of their allies um, who shared that kind of sympathy did as well. And these people, by the end of Betty's life, Fuller sends her a letter saying like, look, you know, um, you need to be a bit more discerning. You need to be a, a bit more skeptical. You, you know, you, you took us out to this field and showed us UFOs and they seem to us to be, you know, uh, lights on a train and street lights and things like that. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's important, though, to contextualize where Betty goes here um, in the fact that, that uh, her husband, uh, Barney, dies quite suddenly in 1969. Um, he was only in his mid-40s. It was a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Um, in the morning, he was fine and healthy. By, the, by bedtime, he was dead. Um, and that was a deep, deep, profound shock to her. Um, and I suspect, right, that a lot of the paths she follows um, in the 1970s through the 1980s, which is to say she grows increasingly interested in this broader world of the New Age movement, right? Um, that is to say, not simply, right, believing in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but also um, dabbling in psychic powers, um, in past life regression, um, she consults mediums. Um, she grows interested um, in the ancient aliens theory, right, which has become very popular over the last 10 years because of the History Channel show, um, the notion that human civilization has been guided since its very inception um, by intelligent creatures from other planets and perhaps other dimensions who have kind of shaped and molded us as we've gone. Betty Hill really becomes plugged into a lot of these things. Um, and I think in part because, um, well, because she and Barney are told um, shortly before Barney's death, by the, in 1966-67, um, by a guy named Robert Holman, who was a UFO investigator whom they were friends with and had a lot of uh, faith in, um, Holman becomes convinced that the Hills encounter is really meaningful, not simply for the Hills, um, but for the sort of broader history of humanity. Um, we call the New Age movement the New Age movement because many of its advocates um, subscribe to this belief that emerged from the Theosophy movement that has roots really far back. Um, in interpretations of Eastern religion and so on, and the idea that humanity is approaching a massive psychic 
spiritual transcendent awakening, that human civilization is about to change dramatically, that we're going to have a kind of mass consciousness raising, um, and, and our society will never be the same after that. Holman thinks this is true. Um, Holman believes in this, and, and he becomes convinced that the Hill's experience is a sign of this, um, that Betty and Barney have an important role to play in this coming awakening of humanity. Um, and Betty Hill, I think, comes to believe that too. And I, I think this is, this is a place where she goes um, after the death of her husband, when she's feeling, I think, kind of lost and adrift. Um, you know, she really seizes on this experience and, and very much, I think, comes, you know, holds to it because it is something that gives her life meaning. Um, it is something that, that, yeah, that, that allows her, I think, some sort of connection, um, even to her husband and to this thing that happened to them that, be, that came to dominate, um, what was going on, um, in all, in their life, um, from birth to death. So I can, you do a good job of drawing in the point of view of Betty and Barney Hill. So I can imagine after having this weird experience where I see something in the sky that I can't explain, but, but. I'm convinced can't possibly be just a plane or a meteor or something like that. Cause I grabbed my binoculars. I'm looking at it. I can see people on board a ship or whatever, and they're in uniforms and things like that. I mean, it was what Barney claims he saw even prior to the hypnosis is fairly detailed. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they, they report it to the air force. And I, I can imagine how I might feel based on reading your book if the Air Force, who has this attitude that our job is to convince people that they didn't really see anything, our job is to convince – this is pseudoscience. It is Science has ruled it out, and the authority of science, the weight of the authority of science has told us that there's just no such thing as UFOs. And the guy does his job. He's taking down the report of what they saw, and they're reading the room. And it's obvious that he's just not taking them seriously. And I can imagine how I might feel, you know, if I'm in their shoes um, at that point. So I, I can see how that might drive them to go try to find people who seem like scientific authorities, you know, in their minds, but are willing to take them seriously. And this, this seems like this is what's happened and why they kind of started down this road. Is that correct? Yeah, I think absolutely. Well, and, and especially for Betty. I think Barney is a bit more wary. Um, Barney is reluctant to call the Air Force in the first place. Um, and, I, and I think that has to do, right, with, well, what, what historians call the politics of respectability, right? Um, Barney Hill is a black man in a state with very few black people. Um, he and Betty both are, are quite involved in the civil rights movement. Um, and, and one of the real tenets of the civil rights movement, and when I say the civil rights movement, what I mean here is uh, the movement led by folks like Martin Luther King that is trying very hard right, to um, gain black people equal access um, to political authority, to cultural authority, to, to participate in American life. That's distinct, I think, from other, other black movements um, like, say, the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, who say essentially, like, we want to be separatists, we want to go off and do our own thing. Um, but for someone like Martin Luther King, right, a part of 
working for equality and gaining equality was to demonstrate black respectability and to show right that black people will wear suits, uh, black people will get educated, they'll they'll participate in, in all the respectable venues of American life. So for Barney, right, calling the Air Force and saying, I just saw this strange thing in the sky and it terrified me and I think it might be an extraterrestrial craft, that felt to him very disrespectable. Right. Right. It was not the sort of thing that a respectable human being did. So he was pretty wary about calling um, the government. Betty, though, was gung-ho for it. Right. Betty, Betty was really interested in this. She wanted to dig in further. And she had, I think, more confidence than Barney did that when they called the Air Force, they'd be taken seriously. Um, she's the one who says later that she was expecting representatives from the Air Force to come out and to talk to them um, and, and to uh, take down their story, right, and to, and to launch a full investigation. And when that didn't happen, Betty Hill was quite annoyed with it. So you, you raise a number of interesting epistemological questions. And this podcast deals in epistemology quite a bit, so I think this would be interesting to our audience. So you quote Thomas Guyron. Did I pronounce that correctly? Oh, Guyron, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The historian of science. Yep. Yeah. So he has this idea that science is something that's identified through consensus and institutional weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this kind of concept that that is becoming common amongst our institutions and in the Air Force, and this is what Betty and Barney are bumping into, that there's this idea of a scientific authority. It's the consensus. It's the institutional weight. There's this institution of science that gets to decide what's true and what isn't, or at least that's how some people interpret it. And then from Daniel Thurs and Ronald Numbers, uh, they talk about how science boundaries were determined by, quote, the academy, military, and industry. And then Michael Golrin claimed, and I don't know if I pronounced that right or not, that the idea of pseudoscience um, is less useful as a way to identify a body of ideas or a method than as a way to mark where the boundaries of science as a professional discipline are at any moment. So there's, there's kind of certain things that are treated as that pseudoscience and certain things that are treated as that science and UFOs are, are firmly institutionally in the pseudoscience camp by the time Betty and Barney Hill come and report their incident to the air force. I would really like to have you maybe elaborate on this and talk through just historically, where were we at? How did they, how has it looked at? How has that maybe changed since then also? And then, Give me your own feelings. Do you agree or disagree with this view of science? Yeah, yeah, this is a good question. And again, a very, very large one. Um, uh, But yeah, here we go. Uh, So one thing that is happening in America in the 20th century is the professionalization and institutionalization of science. Um, And and I want to be clear here, right, when I'm talking about science, um, what I'm talking about here is um, what the bulk of people who have power in America call science, right? And what they say is science. And and which is a different, I think, question than kind of philosophical debates about how do we define science as a method, an idea. Um, One of the interesting things... Good clarification. Yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things here that is happening in America in the 20th century is this, um, in a number of different vectors. Um, the first is that we have emerging in American higher education um, the German model of higher education, which is to say that there are undergraduates and there are graduate students. Graduate students receive degrees. They receive credentials, the PhD degree, for instance, right, or the MA degree, which are certifications by this university um, that this person is an expert. Now, that American universities begin granting PhDs in the late 19th century, and increasingly they're granting more and more of them, and more universities begin to grant PhDs. And this becomes kind of a network of people who are certified um, by universities as experts in whatever field this is. Now, that increasingly then, these people, these PhDs, these credentialed scientists, increasingly begin sometimes intentionally and sometimes not, to marginalize amateurs. And actually, they begin to use that word, amateur, to describe people who are doing science without degrees. Now, this is a real departure from how science, quote-unquote, had worked in the Western world um, since the scientific revolution, right? When you had people, you know, I mean, all the way back to Isaac Newton, right, um, who are just doing, and you can go through the ranks, there's nearly almost all major scientific discoveries before the late 19th century are done by people without these degrees who are doing science as an avocation. Um, Benjamin Franklin, right? And to take another example, those people, though, those so-called amateurs are increasingly marginalized um, by the academic elite going into the early 20th century, and it only persists and gets even more and more and more the case. So by the mid-20th century, right, um, science becomes largely assumed to be the domain of people with PhDs um, who work at universities. Now, beginning in World War I, the government begins to reach out to universities, to these people with PhDs, and to say, we want your advice. We want to consult with you. We want to draw on your expertise. Um, Woodrow Wilson's administration um, in, during World War I reaches out to scientists to help coordinate the war effort. Um, he's looking to economists. He's looking um, also to physical scientists to help develop um, materials needed for the war. And that, only, that escalates massively in World War II. In World War II, the government and the military in particular begin to invest very, very heavily in universities. And in turn, they begin to draw these people with PhDs into government. And of course, the, the famous example of this, of course, is, is the Manhattan Project, in which is large, which kind of cements and solidifies this real nexus and intersection between the state and these professional PhD university-based scientists. After the end of World War II, there is a lot of debate about what should happen now. 
Like, should the state simply step away? Should the state pull all this funding that it's been dumping? I mean, we're talking billions of dollars, all this money that it's been dumping into universities and just let universities go back and start doing this all on their own again. And there are a few people who advocate for that. But for the most part, these professional scientists at universities want to keep all this money that is coming to them from the state. And the state, in its own turn, feels as though you know these people have proven themselves. They developed the atomic bomb, right? And and there's a real worry um, on the part of the state that should the state step back from this relationship with these scientists, that the Soviet Union will overtake the United States, uh, because of course there absolutely was um, a fair amount of Soviet espionage. Um, in the Manhattan Project and the Soviet Union, um, they, they explode their first atomic in 1949 and they were able to do that so quickly, largely because of espionage. Um, so the state has an investment as well in maintaining this relationship. And so you have emerging what one scientist involved in all of this, um, named Alex Weinberg calls, um, big science. And what other people, including Dwight Eisenhower, call the military-industrial complex, um, and he called you know other scholars have said this is really the military-industrial-scientific complex. So this this creation of a network of really tightly interwoven um, university scientists, military officials, and also corporations, increasingly military contractors like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and so on and so on. These these groups are very working very, very closely together and receiving just massive amounts of money from the state. And so all of this then leads to the question of UFOs, right? An accusation that many advocates for UFOs, um, people like Donald Kehoe, who was a former military officer and probably the most visible public advocate for UFOs um, in the 1950s and 60s, his argument is these people decided that UFOs are not a scientific project, that they are pseudoscience. Um, but Kehoe says they decided this because they know they have secret knowledge about UFO technology that they don't want to be made public. So they're actually, so Kehoe says they are actually being unscientific. They are not following the data. In response to that, the Air Force scientists and the people whom the Air Force is consulting with, um, who disagree, say, no, you're being unscientific. Um, and because this nexus of influence, these universities, um, the military, um, these large corporations who employ all of whom employ scientists, right? Um, because by that point, the bulk of institutional weight, um, the bulk of financial weight, the bulk of public prestige is sitting in that nexus, in that intersection. It is easy for them for a government report to be issued stating UFOs are a pseudoscience, and that report is signed by major academics who are working at all of these different universities that are receiving all this federal funding, um, for them to say UFOs are pseudoscience, and for then the bulk of the American public, especially at a point right when um, national trust in the government is quite high, it's easy for that to be believed. Right? And that is what these academics who you quote, who I cite, um, that is what they're arguing, right? Is that pseudoscience becomes in the mid 20th century, 
a, a boundary that is largely drawn um, by people with PhDs, um, people in these large, powerful institutions, and they are able to deem pseudoscience what they want to call pseudoscience. Now, one more thing and then I'm done. Um, my follow-up to that is, this is not necessarily to say, of course, that they are wrong. Um, when, when, the, when the Air Force says there is no real scientific data behind UFOs. There is, as, as the, the Condon report says, right, there is nothing really to be gained scientifically by studying UFOs. It's entirely possible that they're right. Um, but it is also true at the same time that when Donald Kehoe says all of these people decided that this was pseudoscience and they did not do their due diligence um, that the Robertson panel, right, only took three days and they just flipped through a bunch of reports and then made a decision. That's true, too. Right. Um, right. And this is another conundrum that the Hills are caught between. Right. Is that they, they feel dismissed. They feel as though they're not being paid much attention to. Um, and they're not necessarily wrong about that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are right about what they saw and that they are right about their abduction happening. Uh, both those things can be true at the same time. So let me see if I can summarize what I kind of understood to be the point of view. It's, it's not your point of view, but the point of view of the establishment at the time mm -hmm. was like we could have a, de a debate or a discussion about what defines science versus pseudoscience philosophically. That's not sure. really what was going on. It really boiled, mm -hmm. boiled down to that there are certain people who are authorities who get to decide this counts as science and this doesn't. Now, maybe they're doing that right. Maybe they're doing that wrong. We could debate whether they have good individual philosophies that they're using by which to mm -hmm. make this delineation. But at the end of the day, they're by th through a, a sort of authority-based approach, they're deciding what counts as science and what doesn't. Is that... Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and people, you know, people in the media follow them. Um, you know, if, and I cite a few of these people in the book, right? Like James Conant Bryant, right? Who was president of Harvard when James Con and who was a chemist, right? Who was a trained scientist when he writes a book and says, you know, this stuff is science and this stuff is not because James Conant is the president of Harvard, um, his voice carries weight. Right. Um, right. And other people will tend to fall in line with that. And that is, I think, I think it is fair to say, right, that is largely what happens um, with UFOs, is that when a lot of these um, elite, powerful people with big megaphones decide, and, and again, right, it's a separate question about whether to decide correctly or incorrectly, but when they make this decision that this stuff isn't worth investigating anymore, um, largely the media falls in line and, and, you know, and Hollywood falls in line and, and, and the students of these people at these universities fall in line um, and follow the experts. Yeah. Okay. So from page 61 of your book. Finally, the Air Force drew a veil of secrecy over UFO investigations in one more one more effort to prevent the sightings and a credulous public's misinterpretation of them to damage national security. Now, you kind of already hinted at this, but I want to dig into this a little bit. It's one thing for them to decide this is pseudoscience. And, and in mm -hmm. fact, I'm not sure I entirely disagree with that decision. Sure. I, I yeah. think that that at least the vast majority of UFO 
sightings and the way it gets treated is more or less pseudoscience, right? Mm -hmm. But it's another thing altogether to decide that this is going to damage national security if we don't shut people down mm -hmm. <laughs> from yeah, having yeah. beliefs in these things, right? That, that struck me as interesting. I, I, I won't say positive or negative or anything, but that it's interesting that they went that far, right? But mm -hmm. how might UFO investigations damage national security in the minds of the Air Force at this time? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is another place where I think we need to try to put ourselves in the minds of Americans, right? In, in the high Cold War period, that is the late 40s through the late 60s, um, there was a real worry, I think, and this this comes out in the report of the Robertson panel, it comes out in the report of the Condon Committee, that UFOs are going to cause a national panic. And that if Americans believe that our world is being visited by extraterrestrial creatures with powers far beyond ours, that that is going to do a couple of things. First, it might simply cause fear and terror in the streets, right? Um, people not going to work, um, people you know, <laughs> shutting down the economy, not leaving their homes, trying to flee, all sorts of kind of you know, national chaos. Right. And national chaos, importantly, I think, based on largely nothing as far as the Air Force was concerned. Right. These sightings were not there was no science behind them. Nothing worth um, nothing of scientific worth in an investigation is what the Cognitive Committee said. So that's one fear. Another fear, I think, that they were worried about is a diversion of resources. Um, and that largely because of the Cold War and the sense of national competition with the Soviet Union, um, which was weighed very, very heavily on Americans' minds, right? And there was a sense, right, that we need national mobilization, um, that Americans need to be committed to the defeat of the Soviet Union. We need to be devoting our scientific resources, our economic resources, all towards this competition. And UFOs are an irrelevant dead end off of that, then there aren't, they aren't going to help us at all. Um, and so, of course, the Air Force does, and th these documents exist. Um, there is an order coming down from the top of the Air Force to local Air Force bases to tell them, don't speak publicly about UFO cases, don't talk to the media about UFO cases, unless you can clearly and convincingly debunk them. Um, right. So there is, in some sense, right, an attempt to kind of control the narrative on the part of UFOs right. to dismiss these things, um, right, to say this is not something we should even be discussing um, because it is such a drain on our natural on our national resources and such a threat to our national psyche. Right. This is and this gets back to our, our hypnosis conversation uh, from a, a little while ago. Right. This is a period of American history in which there is what we might call today a fair amount of overconfidence about psychology and psychiatry. Um, we see that with hypnosis, right? Then Betty and Barney Hill believed, even before they went in to, um, to see Benjamin Simon, that hypnosis would be able to solve their problems, right? That hypnosis would be able to recover their memories and to help them figure out what had happened to them. Um, it's widely believed in America in the 50s and 60s that hypnosis had near magical powers, 
right? That if you hypnotize someone, I mean, you know, brainwashing, right, is the term that comes out of this period. Um, and there's, you know, there's all sorts of movies and radio shows and so on about how hypnosis could actually like turn you into a communist, right? There's wide fear about this. And so when the Air Force begins saying, right, um, we can't let a national panic happen. And if we let UFOs continue, if we let research into UFOs continue, it's going to cause a national panic. And they were perhaps overstating that. Um, but there was a sense, right, that, that psychology was powerful enough to accurately predict such a thing, that we understood the human psyche well enough that we could foresee some kind of disastrous, huge um, national riot happening because of this. So, okay, I got a couple of questions around this. And this is, I, I actually find this part of the story that you brought up particularly interesting. I, I got a sense, and I, I don't know that I can point to anywhere specifically in the book to back myself up here, but I got a sense that it wasn't so much always about a fear of a national panic as it was that they really just didn't want the the masses, you know, the unwashed masses to have a different opinion from them on what counted as science. Am I wrong? Or is that something that actually is part of the story here? No, no, I think that is a, that's absolutely accurate as well, I think. Um, and there, there is, and this is especially, I think, coming from the American scientific establishment, right? That is to say, people like Conant, right? These really kind of highly respected, nationally known, almost scientific celebrities, for lack of a better word, right? Um, these folks, and again, because of the Cold War, and because of the sense that the Cold War would ultimately hinge on science, right, that America had the advantage in the Cold War because the Americans developed the atomic bomb first, and that the United States needed to be first to any of these new technologies. And we might recall here, right, that there was actually something of a national panic after the Soviets were the first to launch a satellite into orbit, Sputnik. Um, that did cause it national terror, right? And right. and headlines across the country and state legislatures calling emergency sessions to, to dump more money into scientific education in their states, right? Yeah, there absolutely was, right, worry that if American citizens um, did not have correct understandings of science, and if American citizens were not going to school and becoming scientists in order to pursue new research into technology that would help us defeat the Soviet Union, we would lose the Cold War. Right. Um, and of course, the UFOs are a dead end off of that. There is nothing, you know, there was nothing there, according to the Air Force. And so right. they wanted to steer American scientific education back in the direction of what they considered to be genuine, real, useful science. So now there's this idea that comes up in Hollywood in particular all the time that the government has to protect the public in the Hollywood version. There are right. aliens and the mm -hmm. government has to protect the public from the knowledge that there are aliens, because if the public knew that there actually are aliens, which by the way, you just mentioned Donald Kehoe mm -hmm. believed this, right. Um, then it would cause this national terror and society would fall apart. And I, I think I just recently saw a video from Michael Sherman or somebody who he was talking about how they've done tons of studies that have shown that this just isn't the case, that the, the public isn't going to fly off the hinges just, just because they found out that there's such a thing as an alien, you know, or something along those lines. And I have to confess, 
I've always found that story difficult to believe. I mean, that there's tons of people around who I think would be ecstatic to find out that there's aliens, right? There probably are some people who would be very bothered by that. And I always wondered where that story came from. And I felt like when I was reading your book, that like, this is where the story came from, that Hollywood had bought into this story because it was mm -hmm. actually coming from the, the quote, scientific authorities, that this is what was going to happen if we were to find out, you know, that if we people started to believe that there was aliens. And it was interesting twist because in the Hollywood version, there are aliens. And in this version, oh, yeah. there aren't aliens, but it's like the same story other than that. To be fair, it might, it might cause a lot of people to... Um change their worldviews drastically. I mean, who can say how much, how that would affect society as a whole? I mean, I, I don't think anyone, it's probably impossible to predict, don't you think, whether that would be a positive or a negative for the world? Yeah. So, okay. You're, you, to be fair, I don't obviously don't actually know what would happen, right? But the idea that it would cause society to fall apart always seemed like a stretch to me. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Okay. I'm just, my own feeling is that this doesn't feel like it would for some reason cause society to fall apart. And yes, it's this story that gets told in movies in Hollywood over and over and over again. It's so, it's one of the tropes that's so well, and, and I accept it as a trope. I accept it that when they pull out that trope, oh, the government's protecting us from the knowledge of the aliens. I just, I just, for the same reason, I accept that wizards can fly, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's just a trope that I accept that it, when it comes up in a movie, I go, okay, yes, yes, of course, in this movie world, if the humans were to find out there's aliens, their society would fall apart. So that's why they're doing this. And also every single grocery bag has, you know, a little celery stick sticking out of it because that's just the way it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't translate this into real life. It's just a, a trope that I accept as part of storytelling in movies. Right. But I had never, it didn't seem like a realistic trope to me. And maybe I'm wrong. You're welcome to disagree or argue with me over that. But I, I had always wondered where the trope came from. Right. And yeah. why is it this trope exists? And I think what you're saying is it's because that was what they believed at the time. It's, it's an yeah. inverted version of it. If, if I, I think, I think that is accurate, right? I think they, they did worry about this. And in fact, um, well, this is an interesting perhaps side note, um, but we do know that in the past 10 years, NASA has given money um, to, well, there's a, there's a center at Princeton um, for religion and society. And NASA gave them, I believe it was a million dollars, um, for this group to do research into how American religions would respond to the discovery of extraterrestrial intelligence, right? So this is something that is still being researched and still being looked at. And it absolutely was the case in the mid-20th century that there was a great deal of fear that this would cause panic in the streets. Now, that in part derived from early 20th century psychology. Um, early 20th century psychologists had a real, um, well, it, it, we would actually today probably call it racist, um, but there, there was a lot of worry among um, early 20th century psychologists about, as you, as you put it, the unwashed masses, right? About cr what they called crowd psychology, mob psychology, right? And the sense that people um, who were not sufficiently educated 
um, were governed by their emotions and were, you know, and were incapable of rational thought and were maybe always on the brink of panic and, and always on the brink of turning into a mob. And of course, many of these, many of these experts were white and they said, well, just look at Africa, right? Look at, look at Asia. You see mob mentality at work in all of these places. And we need to protect Americans from that. So yes, that, this is, I think, a very, very kind of apt um, connection that you're making. Okay. All right. I, I was ex- I was excited to figure out where the trope came from, just for what it was worth. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Okay. I I do have kind of a uh, what could be a good final question if if okay. we want to go there. Yeah. Why don't we? Okay. Unless unless Bruce wants to interject. No. First. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. Well, I thought you you've done an excellent job. Matt of explaining your motivations for uh, writing the book and your about your research, your academic research into religion and meaning and uh, how that intersects with um, the 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 Hills experiences and UFOs in general. Uh, I'm curious, though, uh, if you could take us back to that moment that I assume sort of aha moment where you heard about this case and you got into it and you were like, this is my next book. This is where I want to go. Oh yeah. That's a great question. Thanks for it. Um, So I mentioned at the top, right. This sort of interest I have in, in, in how American religion um, transforms um, in the 20th century, right. And how we moved, we're moving increasingly towards, I think what is still happening today a deinstitutionalized, individualized kind of bricolage, um, collage of religion, um, and I was, and I and I hit on UFOs pretty quickly um, as a way to get to that. In part because I think you know UFOs are just kind of a fascinating case study. I've, I've said, I think before in our conversation that they are a mirror in a sense. People see in, in UFOs whatever they want to see. They see themselves ultimately. They see their own ideas and anxieties and priorities reflected back to them. And that's certainly the case in uh, UFO, with UFOs and religion. Um, right? There are there are actually you know, there are flying saucer religions that exist in the United States. And many other religions grapple with this problem in interesting ways too. Uh, I initially actually was thinking I might write about Scientology. Um, which I think is another kind of fascinating example of of how religion adapts to science, right? And how and how these kind of languages and ideas um, intermingle. But there have been some really good books on on Scientology um, published um, in the past ten or fifteen years, and I didn't know that I had much to say. And also, you know, I didn't want to get sued, um, so I was looking <laughs> for something else. And, and then I discovered. I had known about the Hill case for a while because it is, of course, kind of a a classic case in American UFO lore, right? It's one of the founding cases um, up there with with, uh, Kenneth Arnold. Um, And so I was poking around them a bit and I I found um, this book that the Hill's niece, Kathleen Martin, published uh, 10 or 15 years ago about the case, which was the first full book on the case since the one that John Fuller, who was the journalist and UFO believer, had written about the Hills back in the mid-60s. Um, so I looked at, at uh, Martin's book, and I discovered in that book that she had donated um, the Hills papers to the University of New Hampshire after she herself used them in the writing of her book. 
Um, and I thought, wow, that's really fascinating, right? I, I did not know there was a Hill paper collection. I did not know their papers were available. Um, and so I went up to the University of New Hampshire um, to take a look. And I thought, wow, yeah, I, I found actually what is a really, I think, magnificent collection. Um, there are hundreds of letters to and from the Hills in that collection, letters that the Hills wrote themselves. Betty Hill, it turns out, was sort of a, a, a real inveterate diarist. Um, and memoir writer. She, she wrote many, many, many different small accounts of her life and her husband's life. Uh, she wrote lots of stories, um, fragments of memoirs. She did eventually publish an autobiography, uh, but a lot of drafts for that autobiography are in this collection as well. There's just a vast amount of, of data um, and stories about, um, about the hills. Um, in this collection, and I thought, this is it. You know, this is I got to use this collection. And I, I, there is nothing better for a historian um, than finding a really rich new collection that other historians have not gotten into yet, and and no other historian, um, other than Kathleen Martin, um, has spent time in this collection before. And so I hope it allowed me to tell a story that really didn't just kind of recap what happened to the Hills, but got into who they were and how they thought and their own, you know, their own kind of personalities. All right. Well, I could probably go on for hours, but uh, we'll let you get back to your family. We know you can, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, folks. This has been a lot of fun. Yes, it has. And thank you for talking with us, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been a real honor for me. Have a good day, guys. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.